0: Welcome to episode 158, Taking the Stand and Providing Feedback, Clinical Considerations for Working with Clients and Family Legal Proceedings, featuring April Tith, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn. Grow. Shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, e. and today I am joined by my dear colleague April Tiff. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist, and she has spent her career working in community mental health and also now works in the court system in California um, through Los Angeles County. And for those of our listeners who are not in California, um, what we're going to be talking about de- today is specific to California, but is definitely applicable to other court systems in the United States in understanding kind of some of the broad strokes and even some intricacies about family law and how uh, family court legal proceedings unfold and what a role is for a therapist. So thank you so much for joining us, April, to talk about uh, something that I think is really confounding and confusing for a lot of clinicians.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Beth. Um, It's really great to be here with you and all of our listeners.
0: So, April, why don't you take a minute and tell our listeners a little bit about you and then also how you came to have this specialization of working within family law proceedings.
1: Absolutely. So, as you've already mentioned, I was a community mental health therapist for many years and transitioned into working for the Superior Court. So, I am a Family Court Services Specialist conducting both very brief child custody evaluations for the court, um, as well as mediation sessions for parents that are going through separation and divorce and share minor children. Um, I was very interested in this uh, combination of mental health and the law. Um, I'm, I'm not an attorney. Uh, I'm not a legal specialist in any way, and our department makes sure that we have uh, that boundary set. Um, the court hires people who hold uh, licensures um, in mental health so that essentially we can provide a clinical perspective um, in, in meeting their needs. So when there is a child custody uh, evaluation that is ordered by the court, it is uh, someone from our department uh, typically uh, that does it. So I became interested in this mainly um, because of that combination of mental health and, and family law. You're already saying words
0: that for the average clinician are intimating like superior court. Um, <laughs> can you give us a quick kind of court system 101 in what the superior court even is, how it fits into family law and how to organize these systems? Because for a lot of us, I think clinicians, particularly in private practice in general, we're uh, afraid of and we avoid legal proceedings. And so then some, someone like you that does this for a living, it's it's uh, different than what we're accustomed to.
1: Sure. And I will say that part of the reason uh, that I felt as though an interview like this uh, could be helpful is because I really wanted to take what I've learned um, from my job and not focus on my job, but really think about what could have been helpful for me as a newer therapist. Now that I um, hold this position, I still connect uh, with therapists through the job in doing child custody evaluations. Many times I am reaching out to uh, families that work with uh, therapists as part of my custody evaluation. So there are times where Um, I'm working with a therapist or gathering information from a therapist and I I sometimes have some concerns. And this really made me think about how this could be helpful to someone who is a bit newer in the uh, therapeutic field um, so that if they're ever in a situation where they are being questioned by someone who either works for the court or even an attorney, um, you know that that they be as um, informed as possible and can be as prepared as possible in thinking about their clients' best interests. So I can really only speak again, you know from from my position, my department is in the family law uh, department of the Superior Court. Um, within Los Angeles. So again, we'm not an expert in anything else. Um, but uh, that is that is where I work. And essentially, if you uh, are a parent who is going through a, a separation and you share minor children with another parent, um you end up uh, filing. Uh, to either go through a separation or divorce, and this can lead to many different kinds of proceedings. Um, Where I fall into this is if there is any sort of dispute regarding custody and visitation for uh, a child, uh, sometimes the the parties are ordered to do a mediation session, and uh, other times during the case, a judge will also order a child custody evaluation, where essentially I interview the family. And um, this leads to making recommendations as to what would be the custody and visitation uh, schedule um, in the child's best interests. And that can lead to getting on the stand and testifying that can lead to being questioned and again my evaluation itself in this context also means that in addition to interviewing the family and teachers um, I, I may also want to reach out to any mental health therapists that have been working with the families. So.
0: Going back to what you said about filing separation or divorce, your role really gets triggered by the involvement of a higher court in the dissolution of some kind of legal relationship. Is that right? And and when children are involved specifically in your role. But otherwise, it's if two folks who have a civil union, a marriage um, file for Separation or divorce, and there are children, minor children involved. Does that automatically trigger the involvement of family court, or is it just if those parents can't come to an agreement about who's going to have custody and how they're going to have custody that then you're involved?
1: Yes, in in the simplest of terms, yes. As essentially, if two parents are unable to agree to the kind of custody and visitation uh, parenting schedule they would want for the children that they share, um, then uh, that's where our department uh, comes into play. So essentially if there is a dispute about the legal custody, um, the physical custody or parenting schedule, usually parties will start off being ordered to attend a mediation session um, where I'm conducting uh, mediation to try and see if if they can reach an agreement that I can write for them, and if not, then it is typically that the the judge uh, who decides. Um, and again, in other cases where the for whatever reason the judge feels as though they want more information and they want um, someone to evaluate the family, then they will order um, a child custody evaluation. With this in mind
0: of your role, where you're wearing multiple hats, whether that's mediation or or custody evaluations, will you break down even what that looks like uh, of what your day to day is? And then next in the interview, I want to move to how we therapists that are outside the court system that are peripheral can understand this process and support this process. But starting with like your day to day, how, how long do these cases take? Like, what do what? What do listeners with very little knowledge about this need to know about what you do and what folks in your role do?
1: Uh, Sure. And I'll focus a little bit more on the uh, child custody evaluation piece of this, as I think uh, that role would would be the most applicable to therapists in the field who may come in contact with someone like me, um, or even just the court system in in general. Um, Essentially, uh, a child custody evaluation Again, different courts, different entities um, do do them differently. And it it is also possible that a therapist uh, may be contacted by uh, a child custody evaluator who also works in the private sector. So it doesn't always have to come uh, from the court, but essentially someone who is conducting a child custody evaluation is often also a licensed mental health therapist, um, not always, um, but they are basically uh, evaluating a family in a very, very different Uh, role uh, than a mental health therapist who is uh, treating the family with different clinical objectives. And I I do think that this is important uh, for newer therapists because uh, this is really where it's important to ensure that as a new therapist who is uh, treating the family with traditional psychotherapy, um, that their boundaries are clear in case they're working with a family that is also involved in, in family law proceedings. Because as a new therapist, it is possible that either the family, any attorneys on the case, or even the court uh, might want some information uh, from, from anyone in the family um, and any treating clinicians that they're working with. So, what I've seen a lot um, now that I've transitioned into this role is when I um, asked to speak uh, with therapists as part of my evaluation process, it's been really interesting to see any letters um, that therapists provide to me um, in discussing the family. It's been interesting speaking um, with with therapists now that I'm on this side of things. And sometimes I do have concerns with the information um, that is provided to me uh, just just in, in wearing this different hat now um, and thinking about how I would feel really if I were still on the other side of that as a therapist working with the family.
0: When you say concerns, if you don't mind and knowing that you need to Protects obviously privacy and confidentiality. Can you give some examples of the things that over the years have um, met your eyes and you are not sure? It sounds like if if you had been in that same position, that you would have done the same thing. Can you can you tell our listeners like what that looks like?
1: Absolutely. Um, Given that the families that I see are obviously in in custody proceedings, um, many uh, of the families that I work with are often um, already seeing a, a mental health therapist or have the children seeing a mental health therapist. And there are times where the therapist has given opinions about uh, custody and and visitation that that is something that again it doesn't happen all the time um, but there are times where I see it uh, much more than than I would like and and I have a lot of questions usually for therapists that have either written these long elaborate letters to the court about why they think the child should be more with one parent than the other um, why they have these opinions providing clinical opinions about one of the parents that they've never even met. Um, I would say, again, providing opinions about custody and visitation which typically it is out of out of uh, scope ethically is uh, the number one concern concerning thing that I see, which often leads me to have more questions about what specific goals that therapist is working on with the child or family, um, why it is they decided to provide that clinical opinion, uh, why they thought that would be helpful. Um, so that is, it, that is one thing um, that I see a lot. The second concern um, that I see at times, connects with that as well. Um, sometimes it is it is when a therapist provides their clinical opinion um, about the parenting skills um, of either parent, um, and it is especially concerning if they have strong opinions about one parent's parenting skills when they haven't even really interacted that much, and sometimes have not even met um, the other parent that they're working with. Thirdly, I, I would say that. Even from the get-go, involvement of, of either parent can be something that varies a lot between therapists. There are uh, many therapists who don't often have a reason as to why they haven't involved the other parent, um, especially if there uh, is joint legal custody, for example, held uh, between both parents. And uh, technically speaking, even though one parent can enroll the child in uh, therapy, if if two parties are sharing joint legal custody, then that also means that either parent at any point can unilaterally withdraw. And so sometimes I do just have questions um, for uh, for therapists uh, that that really focus on how they came to the decision to either involve, or not involve uh, parents as well. To kind of restate what you just said, it it sounds like sometimes you
0: feel that therapists maybe are starting to transition, I guess, in the hat that they're wearing. And for you, you worry about the ethics of it because now they've gone from providing a mental health service to potentially veering into a lane about having a, a formal opinion that could have a huge influence on the outcome of custody evaluations. What's your advice for those clinicians? I mean, I, I'm thinking for me as an adolescent and young adult therapist, I'm certainly thinking of situations where things between parents have potentially gone to separation, divorce, and then thinking about my role in it. And there are some times where I have perhaps less of an opinion. And there are other times where I have a really strong opinion about who I feel would be a better parent given the situation. How do you recommend therapists think through that and decide what they're going to do? Because I I would imagine also therapists are getting a whole lot of pressure from one or both parents to involve themselves in the situation. So there's a sense of um, perhaps obligation and confusion how to handle it when a parent says, well, you know that this child should stay with me and you know that being with that parent would be bad and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and
1: you're like, pinned up against
0: the wall as the a therapist.
1: Absolutely. Most definitely. And, and that is where the boundaries and ethics of this from the get-go are most important. Um, So not only from the second that a therapist meets a family, but also um, making sure that they're constantly reassessing this situation as the therapy progresses. So to start off, if the the therapist has been informed by the parties that there is court involvement, um, I would I would definitely encourage that a, a therapist ask as many questions as possible um, about what kind of court is being involved because there are many courts outside of family law um, that that could be involved here um, essentially if the the family is, going to expect that they're going to need to provide any sort of letters to court. That would be really important uh, for the therapist to not only ask, but also um, think about beforehand as far as where their boundaries lie in terms of even writing those types of letters, whether they have the capacity to do that, whether they are providing the kind of treatment um, that uh, would be indicated for that. Um, and then also ensuring that if a, a family is coming to them with a court order um, indicating what kind of therapy they should have, that would be very important too. So, this is where the assessment piece, and I'm sure you have many other amazing podcasts that talk about uh assessments and, and making sure that our, our uh, documentation, as any ther- therapist knows, is crucial. Um, it, it would really be an important baseline question um, for any assessment as far as court involvement, whether they are court-ordered or court-mandated, and in, if in family law um, if the court has provided any specifics with regards to what kind of objectives they should be working on, um, who should be involved in the therapy, whether it should be conjoint family therapy or whether this is therapy for uh, the child, um, these are just some questions that I, I would encourage any therapist to really uh, become familiar with to ensure that at the very least um, they, they have a foundation for that. They understand if this is uh, potentially going to be uh, a therapy that they can even provide for the family. Because if, if they, the family is coming to them with a court order indicating that they need a very specific kind of therapy, such as reunification therapy, for example, Um, which essentially um, is something that the court sometimes considers if there's been an estrangement or maybe a parent um, that is less bonded with the child or hasn't had as much time with the child or there's been a rift in the relationship. Um, As a clinician, uh, it is not only okay but also ethically appropriate to ensure that you can even provide the kinds of services that are mandated for this family and that this family could benefit from. And if you're unsure, again as a new therapist, make sure that you're consulting um, with a supervisor or even the quality assurance department that your uh, community organization might have really to ensure that everything is lined up as far as the legal- legality of this, the ethics um, and the boundaries. So that I would I would stress that uh, really from the get-go to ensure that there's a strong foundation for how you're working with this family. And so that uh, you're being transparent with the family as well in terms of what you can provide and what it is um, they're seeking.
0: I know some clinicians in private practice who, in general, have a policy, even in their informed consent, saying, I won't involve myself in legal proceedings, basically, unless I'm legally required to. What's your opinion? And granted, again, this is just an opinion from your particular role through your experience. What's your opinion on that? And I'm, I'm curious, like, in general, do you err on the side of clinicians not involving themselves unless you're actually seeking their involvement, which is a different thing than writing a letter and kind of putting it out into the universe before they're even requested to versus you engaging with them or someone in your role asking for feedback.
1: Um, I think clear and transparent boundaries are fine. I, I think if a clinician has decided that that is the Uh, role that they're taking in this, that that is what they can provide. Obviously, that was an informed decision on their end, and and it makes sense. They're essentially uh, trying to assert their boundaries in terms of working um, with families and making it very clear that if they are asked by a court order uh, to be involved, then they will be involved, but really nothing uh, further than that. And I think that is something that um, any clinician really would, would have to do anyway, because even if there is a subpoena or a court order or an attorney or an evaluator reaching out asking um, what your opinion is, um, it, it is within uh, your right to really reflect on that. Also, to make sure that any information that you're providing is in your client's best um, interests, as a therapist, because that is of the utmost priority, is to ensure that any information um, being provided is going to. to be in the client's best interest and won't do um, any harm to the client. So I think making that decision is, is going to be um, really important because once that information is provided, the therapist really can't predict how that information is going to be utilized.
0: Right. You just opened up kind of a legal minefield. Um, And thinking about how for clinicians, for example, in deciding what records to release, many states provide clarity about, you know, you can just provide a summary or you can decline records release in certain circumstances for X, Y, Z reason. Typically, (laughs) divorce proceedings are not enjoyable by the people that are involved in them. And as much as I would love for there to be a partnership between the parents to try to work in the best interest of the child, that's certainly not always what happens. And so for things to get very contentious very quickly, if a therapist takes a position, or if they're conveying even the position of a child, then how is that going to affect estrangement relationship? It's just these ripples that I could see across a child's life being extraordinary.
1: It, it is really important definitely to ensure that that those roles are clear. Um, I, I would probably add that I, I would say to one of the red flag concerns that I will sometimes see as far as a therapist speaking on behalf of any of the family members. Um, There are times where I've interviewed therapists um, either telephonically um, or even, you know, via email or reading this through, again, uh, documentation that they themselves have submitted to the court where there really isn't a distinction between their clinical opinion versus what was stated in a therapy session. Um, And I do think it's important to ensure, again, that uh, a therapist is really thinking about the implications of simply just relaying what was stated in a therapy session or what's been going on in therapy versus how they are conceptualizing this case how are they conceptualizing this family and what their actual clinical opinion is in working with this family there are times where um again i see that that line is is really blurry um and and i do think that that can have um, really concerning uh, implications, you know, for the case, um, and and I don't know if the therapist is even really aware of the fact that they haven't made that distinction. I, I do think, again, most therapists are trying to help. Um, they want to provide as much helpful information um, as much as possible, um, but I, I do think it. It would be in their best interests as well as in the family's best interests to really make sure um, that they're understanding their role in that. Right. So, to recap what you've said from the get go, from
0: assessment, making sure that you're asking questions to let you know who has custody how the custody arrangement is working out, if there are concurrent family law proceedings, but also this idea of being very clear in your role. So if you are simply asking or acting as a therapist um, to provide, we'll say services to one or more sibling sets that I would imagine at the point you're giving an opinion, your role has just shifted. Now you've stepped into an evaluative role, which you may or may not I guess appropriately hold because then you have a dual relationship.
1: Correct. And and yes, it the the lines can be fuzzy, right? As far as providing clinical opinions as wanted by the court. Um again, it's it's not to say that a therapist cannot do that. Sometimes, again, this is helpful information. It's information that the court needs. Um, but as far as discerning between a clinical opinion versus um being the voice of their client or either of the parents is really where sometimes um, that that line um, it becomes difficult uh, for therapists because they do have a personal opinion uh, perhaps about parenting styles or what a, a custody and visitation schedule should be based on what the family tells them. Um, but that is very different in terms of thinking about uh, this family and conceptualizing this family from the specific goals um, that they're working on with the family as far as treatment progress. I appreciate what you just said because I
0: think right right there was where it shifted where it almost sounds like you've seen therapists take more of a advocate role. and that's where you see the potential for things to get very complicated because of the complexity of whatever the recommendation might be in terms of the impact on the evaluation.
1: Absolutely. Exactly. That's exactly it. I I think that uh, part of of the concern that I see at times when I'm going over documentation or when I'm getting ready to speak with a therapist is when I see that it's been written or stated somewhere that the therapist said, because of X, Y, and Z, I think I think the child should should stay at mom's house more. I, I have actually seen that written many, many times in, in different um, contexts and, and capacities. And it, it always leads me to uh, just a whole other set of questions uh, that I have for the therapist with regards to um, how, how they got here. And again, this is not to say that the therapist uh, wasn't thinking uh, from Uh, From a safety perspective, um, this can get very complicated, especially in cases where there have been allegations of abuse or domestic violence or if there are restraining orders at play. Um, Obviously, again, a therapist may be thinking about what is safe. Uh, for their client and what is safe for the child. And so sometimes I, I can definitely understand how a therapist may have stated that from uh, more of a crisis perspective or a safety perspective. Um, but again, it, it is complicated for the therapist because I think what they sometimes don't know is just how complicated and complex uh, their, their family's uh, legal cases. And so this, this is where things get a bit complicated for the clinician because again, I, I understand that they probably are trying to uh, ensure that their their child and family and whomever they're working with um, are, are staying safe in this sort of situation.
0: Complicated work that you do. So
1: let's <laughs> pretend
0: let's pretend you don't have a letter. You haven't gotten uh, any input from a clinician. and it comes to your attention. So so to walk our listeners through the process, mediation is done prior to court proceeding in an attempt to try to sort out kind of what the agreement is. And then if that agreement doesn't come, then it could go to you to someone who's doing an actual evaluation of custody and saying, okay, if you all can't come to an agreement about this, and I'm going to step in or the court's basically going to step in to try to uh, issue an opinion to help guide what the judge is going to do. Is that right?
1: That that's a possibility. Um, the evaluations are, are not always ordered, um, and again, as far as the the court's decision to order an evaluation, it can happen at, at various times um, during during the case. So I can't really speak to that. Um, but yes, it, there are there essentially are times where um, the judge perhaps wants more information uh, from the family, and then will order and uh, for someone in family court services essentially to do a child custody evaluation or also a private evaluator as well. Essentially, um, a custody evaluation uh, entails me me speaking with uh, parents on both sides, um, speaking also and interviewing the child, um, conducting observations so that we can see the uh, children with each parent. Um, and then also, again, if, if possible, making sure that there's time to speak with um, uh, teachers uh, and any therapists and any additional family members that may have a perspective on the parents and their co parenting dynamic.
0: Out of curiosity, are you in your role given a timeline where it's, hey, April, you have this much time to do this, where you need to do all of these tasks and then regurgitate all of this information to create your opinion and recommendation to the judge. What what does that look like just so that clinicians on the outside can observe like this this is what's happening behind the scenes when uh, evaluator reach outs, reaches out to you?
1: Yes, specifically for uh, the, the superior court. Uh, one common type of custody evaluation that we do are one or two day parenting plan assessments where um, there there isn't that much time. They are uh, limited uh, in time and scope to either you know, essentially that half a day um, or that one and a half a day process. Obviously, there's a lot of work that we do um, on outside hours.
0: I think it's helpful for clinicians to understand that this is a really brief process then that we're talking about where you need to get as much information as possible to make an informed decision because you and your role appreciate the impact that it's going to have on a child and a family system. That is fast. A day or two is fast. So does that mean if a file lands on your desk and it's your responsibility to have this role And you call a clinician, as you and I are interviewing this, we're in 2022. And goodness knows that we are in a mental health crisis. And we have clinicians that are, whether they're in private practice or in uh, community health organizations, or whatever type of uh, context, really overwhelmed. What happens when clinicians don't return your call? Do you nag? Or do you say, I'm not going to get that opinion? I'm just curious. (laughs)
1: Great, great question. Um, it, it just depends on on the situation. Um, the court really tries to ensure that the parents themselves have already signed a release of information on our end, um, so that that's something that we can provide to the therapist. So I, I do. <laughs> I don't want to use the word stalk because that's not <laughs> that's not accurate. But there are times where if I don't have a therapist's phone number or the parents don't have the therapist emails, I will try to find that therapist and just just so that I can provide them with the context. Um, provide them with the authorization, um, provide them with the ability to also provide me with an authorization just in case a one-way release of information is not sufficient um, for that therapist, even though the parents have signed it on our end. I do always try to make sure that there's as much time as possible beforehand and just time to set aside to see if, if we can spend a couple of minutes speaking. Um, so again, we, we do what we can, um, but if uh, the evaluation is limited in, in time and scope. That is something that uh, we clearly reiterate to the court. So I will state, you know, what my attempts were, and also um, the the timeline of it, also that the court um, is is aware of it. But obviously, again, it, it's always really helpful if I think that maybe a therapist has a helpful clinical perspective about um, their work with the family, not just in terms of um, their work with the child, but also of the the co parenting dynamic between the parents. So it, it's always great if I can at least connect with a therapist. Um, and at least again, for my role, I always reiterate to the therapist that anything that we discuss, sorry, anything that we discuss might get discussed um, in open court so that they understand what that means. I, I would definitely suggest for a therapist uh, who may be feeling really overwhelmed by all of this, that they ask as many questions as possible of whoever is is reaching out to them, so that they can uh, decide uh, what's best for them in that regard. And again, I can only speak from uh, from my role as a, a mental health, um, as someone who holds a mental health background, but is working as a child custody evaluator. It can be very daunting if it's an attorney that's trying to reach out, you know, to the therapist, which is a very very different. Um, Uh, dynamic. So again, consult, 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 understand your boundaries. Consult also with any um, behavioral uh, board such as the BBS um, or APA that that are overseeing the therapist licensure really to make sure that they are as informed as possible, especially if there are things that are just out of their scope. Um, and, and this includes also consulting with um, their own legal counsel as well, if if they feel as though that's going to be um, something that that is helpful.
0: Everything that you just said, I think, is what scares therapists. <laughs> <laughs> about involvement when their phone,
1: yeah when their phone rings, I'm like, oh no,
0: what do I have to do what's happening um so along those lines, our clinician, does not, at least in California, does not have to speak with a custody evaluator. It's not like there's some law that says you have to return this person's call. And it could be really the clinician's discretion if they even had time to return the call, acknowledging how busy everybody is. Um, But that what we're talking about for a custody evaluator is different than the uh, issuance of a court order or a subpoena.
1: Correct. Yeah, I, I at least in in my role, um, I'm I I don't make orders. I don't have orders. Um, I I get ordered. Um, or it's part of my job to to conduct a child custody evaluation. Sometimes there simply isn't time, uh, to be able to interview everyone that the family wants you to interview um and there are times where also because therapists are really really busy as well they have back-to-back clients i completely understand um that they they just don't have the time i i would say that again just um if a therapist is ever unsure of who's contacting them because i imagine that there are many different uh types of of, um, entities that could be reaching out to them outside of, of my scope, outside of custody evaluations, outside of the attorneys, um, many different kinds of courts that could be reaching out Uh, to the therapist. As as a new therapist, again, just ask as many questions as possible. Ensure that you're getting everyone's uh, name and job title, where they're coming from. Um, And before anything else, if, if there is a release of information that is needed, definitely, definitely make sure that you're consulting with your client, checking in with your client regarding their perspective on the situation, obtaining any necessary documentation that you have even before confirming that you have met or worked um, with a particular client. Thank
0: you for that. And to restate something you just said for our listeners... Uh, If you are faced with a request for involvement in family law proceedings, your best resource is going to be consultation with colleagues and also reaching out to professional associations. April mentioned the Board of Behavioral Sciences, which is who we have in California, but that for many clinicians, this is such a touchy subject and for that reason to make sure we're seeking feedback. uh, And as you said, asking lots of questions of what are the implications of what I'm about to say. So for the people who have gotten a phone call from you or are asked to actually present in court for clinicians, what are some of the pieces of advice you have about what it means to say something to you? You know, like, what if we don't know the answer to the question? What if we feel like a question itself is, is loaded, if you will, how do clinicians need to conceptualize their role here? Because it is different. I, I, I've never been trained in this. Um, well, it may have come up in my uh, master's program. That was a long time ago. But so to kind of do a refresher of like, if, if you're getting these questions, here's what you need to think about clinically before you answer something.
1: Right. I, I would definitely encourage that the therapists be able to uh, take their time Uh, before speaking. There's no harm in that Um, because really, again, this is thinking about what is clinically appropriate and in the best interests of your client, which again may be different from um, the court's expectations or why a custody evaluation is happening. Again, you are just one piece of this puzzle and you are working as a therapist with a family for the specific treatment objectives um, that, that you have for them, which may be completely different, unrelated, or only one small piece of whatever it is they have going on in their legal proceedings. And so really, again, you can only speak to that. And it's okay if you can only speak to those things. Um, So I I would definitely encourage that therapists uh, really think uh, concretely before answering, um, really thinking about um, the uh, the facts at hand. And the facts are essentially how long you've been working um, with a family, how they came to see you, reason for referral, um, how many sessions that you've had. A lot of times I'll we'll have questions about the kind of therapy sessions that you've had. And again, this just comes from from our lens because if we're, we're working uh, from more of the family perspective, then I'll usually want to know a little bit about both parents' involvement. So, that's that's why I tend to ask questions like that. So, a therapist may also want to, again, ensure that there's clarity in terms of the kinds of sessions that they're having, why they're having those types of sessions and, and why they were having those kinds of sessions in the first place. Specific treatment objectives so that it's clear as to how you're working with the family, why you're working with the family, um, and uh, what progress has been made in the specific objectives that you have, because remember the objectives that you have are different potentially um, from, from a custody evaluation. And so that at least in some way can clarify what your role is. Just like if, if you were educational staff, um, you know, working with the family, obviously your role is very specific in terms of the student that, that goes to your school. Um, it's it's really not, not that different. Again, you're the therapist uh, working with a family and so you can answer questions to that. And if there is a question that you don't know, it is absolutely okay to say you don't know. Um, you can you can absolutely ask for a question to be rephrased or clarified um, because the reality is is that you're you're uncertain, and and that's okay. Um, it's it's really not in the client's best interest to. Um, make something up. It 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 doesn't uh it, it really wouldn't benefit them if you were answering something with a with a response that you were actually kind of unsure about. Um so there's really no harm in in saying that that you don't know something if that truly is the case. Thank you. Uh, when you and I had talked
0: about this topic previously, one of the things you had said was that a clinician should never feel like they need a guess. <laughs> that <laughs> what they should be reporting should be really fact-based and that you should never guess and that it's okay to punt the question and say, I don't have an answer to that. Or can you rephrase it um, so that you don't wind up, I guess, creating a lack of clarity around a question that's being asked.
1: Right. And and this may be more of a tip too, if... If they're ever um, talking to an attorney, for example, and again, I'm I'm not an attorney; that's not my role. Again, we we all have different objectives, but um, an an attorney is is working for either side of the family, right? Um, and and so. Their objectives may be very, very different from a child custody evaluation. They're not necessarily working for the court, um, and and so they may be wanting specific information that potentially could be assisting whatever case uh, they have and whatever case they're trying to make. And so um, it, it is possible that therapists can get really overwhelmed with complex questions from attorneys, um, with with. Uh, closed-ended questions versus one that provides them the ability to openly respond, um, and so it's absolutely okay for a therapist to set that boundary in case they really don't understand the question or or feel as though their their words are being twisted or how their answering is is not coming out in the way that they would like it to. It's okay to to take a breather there um, and and just state that they're either unsure. Um, or they they need some time to think about it. Again, I, I can't speak for, um, you know, all, all these different contexts. Obviously, it's different if a therapist is ever um, in a court proceeding or on the stand. Um, but that is also really uh, where it's okay to, to set that boundary as well. You only know what you know. And um, I, I definitely would, again, just ensure that they're... Uh, prepared with the information that they do know down to the basics in terms of, again, how long you've been working with this family, why you're working with this family, what kind of progress that you've made with the family, if there are safety or risk concerns um, that you have, things like that. Thank you.
0: So again, if an evaluator asks a question or an attorney asks a question that the clinician doesn't feel comfortable Uh, answering. It's okay for the clinician to say, I don't have an answer to that question. Uh, Because I think one of the things that I've seen and I've heard before, clinicians in general, I would say are really creative thinkers and we're also, we are linking information. That's part of what we do is we take information from the past and look at what's happening in the present and then make interpretations as part of our work. And that that's all well and good, but perhaps not on the stand. (laughs)
1: And <laughs> no. to to and that, and that goes for me as well, sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, to to remember to answer only the question that's being asked, and to really keep your eye on the prize.
1: Right. And this is really where this, this clinical loop comes in, right? Because let's say you've been in a situation where um, your records have been subpoenaed. Um, there, there's, again, documentation out there. And let's say you don't know the answer to a question and, and someone is like, well, okay, well, what about when you wrote here in this note X, Y, and Z? And now you're saying blah, blah, blah. This is where, again, you're the holder of this information, right? You, you're the clinician, um, you're aware, and and again, it would be in your best interest to ensure that you're aware of what you're putting out there, really being mindful of how you're writing your notes. This is where everything really ties into that huge clinical loop from start to finish and ensuring that whatever you're writing is just not a regurgitation of what's being stated in session, but that you're... you're being clear, both in writing, um, as well as, um, in, in any response that you're giving, um, to, to make sure that there's uh, clarity in in terms of how you have been addressing your objectives with the client. And if you've really made sure to set those appropriate boundaries um, from from start to finish, then you know again, you're you're going to be fine in, in terms of making sure that you're acting within your scope. So
0: to piggyback on what you just said, my next question,
1: if a clinician is going, to be on the stand. What does that even mean? I can only speak from from how things are when I am on the stand, um, but there's definitely a lot of crossover. So as far as basic tips uh, just for um, anyone on the stand, that essentially means that you are for whatever reason um, in a court proceeding, maybe you've been asked or ordered to testify in court. Um, and I think the same the same tips and strategies really uh, apply on, on both ends, um, really ensuring that um, you are, as you've already mentioned, answering the question at hand. And um, I, I will stress this because the question at hand is sometimes very complex a very long, um, a really, really long sentence can all, almost seem like a question and a question depending on who is asking that question and, and potentially meant to confuse you or meant to seek a certain kind of answer that the the interviewer is asking. Um, again, not, not to say that this would is from the custody evaluator but like maybe for from an attorney for example right um and and that is really where again you can take your time you can ask for a question to uh be rephrased um you can state that you don't understand the question especially if, if that is the truth correct if, if the truth is that the question confuses you that's okay. You know, I, I would imagine as a therapist, there may be some concern or insecurities that they have, especially in a courtroom, in not wanting to seem as though they're unprofessional and wanting to seem as though they're coming at this from from an intellectual place. Um, but again, the courtroom is is a different is a different environment, and you're there um, again to speak clearly and truthfully about the work that you've done with a client. And if there's a question that's being posed to you um, that that really doesn't make sense or that you really can't answer, um, it, it makes sense for you to be able to state that um, so that a question can be posed to you in a way that makes sense.
0: As we're talking about this, one thing that you've mentioned repeatedly is the importance of documentation and In my role as a documentation trainer, this is actually one of those perfect examples of the complexity of where our notes can go or where clinical information in general. And for our listeners, just to recap what April has said, that these things may be um, called upon with specific information and regardless of the pay source. So whether we're working in an agency or we're working in private practice, I think one of the... Um, misinterpretations that I see in my role as a a documentation trainer is that if we're in private practice, if we're quote unquote cash pay, our notes don't really matter. And this is a perfect example of why they do (laughs) and where they do. (laughs) And also why it's an ethical mandate for all of us, regardless of pay source, regardless of the context of our work to make sure that we're keeping adequate clinical documentation. Um, and, And I think it's hard. I think The potential involvement of family law is intimidating for clinicians. It's something that comes up for me as a trainer of like, well, do I document that? Do I not document? How do I document? Um, Because we're mindful of wanting to accurately report what's happening in session while also being aware of the client's right to privacy and confidentiality. So how much do we talk about? How deeply do we get in detail? How much do we have an opinion, quote, unquote, versus a clinical assessment? Like these are complex um, considerations. But I think what what you've talked about has highlighted that importance of really thinking through what are you putting in your notes? And that just because um, you're working, let's say, with a child, that at that moment, there's no mention of divorce or separation, anything else. That doesn't mean it couldn't happen down the road. And to keep that in mind that our crystal balls don't work very well. (laughs) So we don't know what's going to happen and make sure that our clinical documentation is an accurate representation of what's happening in that child or family's treatment.
1: Absolutely. It's it's a really tough balance in terms of really being Concerned and sometimes scared that your your work with the family is going to be reviewed with a fine-tooth comb, but also um, ensuring that um, you you are doing everything that you can and in terms of what's appropriate and making sure that you're providing appropriate treatment for the family. Obviously, these families are going through a really, really difficult time, just like any other client um, that you're working with. There's a lot of complexities to treatment that for some reason, for some, that's part of the reason why parties are seeking treatment it is to to sort of help cope with all of this stress. And so it is, it is a balance because at the end of the day, we can't also avoid situations. Obviously, you shouldn't ignore subpoenas or court orders and, and things like that. You do want to make sure that your... your um, responding and, and, and providing everything that you can in the client's best interest. But it can take some practice and lots of supervision um, to really understand how to appropriately write notes, really figure out um, what makes sense as far as to include and what to exclude and, and continuously making sure that you're learning how to conceptualize um, the case and, and assess your own work with the family and the progress um, that you're making.
0: The other piece that I've been thinking about while you've been speaking, and this is not something that is a focus of this interview, but I just want to toss it out there for our listeners too. We, April and I are talking about a clinician's involvement in the actual court proceedings or in custody evaluation, which doesn't say much about your um, expectations and requirements for your own procedures if you're a private practice therapist. So for example, do you have in your informed consent, do you review with clients at as a rule, you don't involve yourself in court proceedings unless you are absolutely mandated to to do so, for example. Um what about setting fees? Everything April's talking about, that's going to take time. <laughs> so if somebody if someone like April calls you and then you're on the phone with that person for forty five minutes, what happens at forty five minutes? Is that covered in your informed consent, where you're going to bill at your standard um, hourly rate? Is it a different rate? And that there are different um, Considerations and also different laws in different states about what you can and can't bill for. So, same with um, production of records. There are some laws, both federally and in different states, about how much you can charge to prepare records and to know what those are. And also noting we're not talking about that today. And so, that's kind of the limitation of our hour. Right. That's a whole different topic uh, in this informed Mm -hmm. consent concept. But to keep in mind those elements as well that if you're listening to this and and you work with children, work with families, that this is something that could um, amount from your work. And actually, as I say that, it wouldn't even necessarily... I'm curious, do you as an evaluator speak ever with a couples or adults therapist or only with a child or families?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. We There are uh, cases where if there has been a parent that is... Is working with her own individual therapist. I will often ask for um, consent to speak with that uh, therapist as well. Um, really, any any anything is possible in, in terms of why the court Um, might want that why I think it makes sense as far as the custody evaluations go Um, a lot of it again can still tie back to the child um, parenting skills any work that they're doing specifically about parenting or even co-parenting so so any of it for any therapist is a possibility and every listener just had the hair
0: on the back of their neck stand up. Go! So it's not only if I work with children and families, it's pretty much anyone ever at any time that could get married or therefore divorced, divorced or separated. Um, but I, but actually thank you, you for would that. Be because fine. I, I think that again, circles back to, the uh, importance of practice management and awareness about what we are saying we're going to do and how much it's going to cost and what our role is going to be. Um, And circling back to one of the things you said earlier, just being really clear about that role, if we're operating as um, a mediator or as an evaluator or, you know, like we said, if you go into this realm where you're starting to give opinions, that's where like my one of my eyes starts to close a little bit. I'm like, ah, like that, <laughs> that feels uneasy. But as you said, sometimes it's, it is muddy just by nature of the work. So to be really clear about what your role is and what your um, guiding light is.
1: And many of those uh, questions uh, from the get go um, are also really important for the therapist's practice anyway, correct? If, if a, if a family is going through a separation, whether this is pre-litigation, post-litigation, whether there are court orders or not court orders, um, all of this would make sense for a therapist to assess in order for that treatment planning to be most effective as well. Because if you have parents that are going through a separation and this child lives in two different households, or if there is a custody dispute, if there is no set parenting schedule, all of that can impact the child's mental and emotional wellness. And so sometimes these questions are overlooked and we see it as more binary, such as divorced or not divorced, um, whereas it's it can actually be much more complex. And all of this can affect your work as a therapist, because if you are setting goals with this family and working with either parent on parenting strategies um, and and talking about behavioral management and household rules and things like that, but you fail to really consider that this child is actually in many different households several times during the week, that there's a lot of back and forth. Um, sometimes that has a direct effect um, on on the efficacy of the treatment itself. So again, all questions that can also benefit you and and the client as well. Thank
0: you, April. Thank you for throwing that in there at the end. There There is so much that we could talk about with this topic. However, I think that the conversation that we've had today has still at least helped clarify the process. Um, and hopefully help take away a little bit of the intimidation factor. Uh, because when there are attorneys involved, I think everybody just gets clammed up. Um, sure. So <laughs> thank you for spending this time with us. Um, for folks who are listening that want to learn more about you and or your role, if they were listening and wanted to become an evaluator, how does one do that and how do people get in touch with you?
1: Sure. Um, so if they if they just want to uh, get in touch with me, they can Uh, look for my LinkedIn. Um, And as far as they're interested in child custody evaluation and through uh, the court, um, I'm sure that they can look on the court's website for further information about the process itself. And one last question that you just kind of led me to, you
0: were trained in all of this, but when you got your job with the court, this wasn't something you had done before. So it's not like you had Um, I mean, you'd worked with families and you'd worked in community mental health, but you weren't a a mediator, let's say, beforehand. This was something that the court hired you and then they trained you, this is what you're going to do. Um, Is that right?
1: Yes. Yeah. I, at least again, in this particular court, they were looking for mental health clinicians. So you had to have been licensed um, for a certain number of years um, and went through um, an interview uh, process. And after that, there was an additional year of training as well. Now, again, this could vary with different counties and different courts. This is really just one example and different counties and states do things very differently. And so as far as LA Superior family law, this was our protocol now. But yeah, if anyone else is, is interested in that, I, I would definitely look into um, your own county courts website and check it out.
0: Awesome, thank you, April. Um... This has been a really interesting hour to spend with you and I appreciate you taking time from what I know is a busy schedule um, to <laughs> to uh, de-intimidate us, if you will, and to calm us down about the idea of being involved in family court proceedings. I
1: appreciate it. And we're all working on it. It's a day-to-day process. So <laughs> I, I appreciate um, you, you uh, taking this time with me as well and hope it was helpful.